0: And here in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning, we're continuing our sermon, and, and just to kind of build on the testimony I just shared, it's it's amazing how God works um, in your life. You know, many times I would spend 10, 12, 15 hours in study every single week. The last several weeks, with everything going on, God has given me grace. to feel kind of like Spurgeon. He did the, the Saturday night special most of his time uh, as as a minister um, in the 1800s, and it literally in, in like an hour or two hours, the Lord has helped me see all these things much faster than normal. So his, his strength in the midst of difficult times is just an incredible testimony. Again, I want to give him all the credit uh, for the privilege he gives me to be able to share share his word. So in Nehemiah chapter 5, if, if you want to stand, you can. I'm not going to, but uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to read this whole chapter and then... We'll walk through it and pray like we normally do. And there was a great outcry in the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. They were also those who said we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is all flesh of our brethren and our children as, children, as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have been bought, brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have lands, our lands and vineyards. Verse 6. And I became very angry. When I heard the outcry and these words, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and their rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren, who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced, and they found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies, I also with my brethren and my servants and lending them money and grain. Please um, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a one hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it, and they require nothing from them, uh, and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I took out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Moreover, the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither did I nor my brothers ate the king's provisions. But they were, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them the bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall. We did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered together for the work, and at my table there were one hundred and fifty Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowl, were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for a powerful passage and powerful truths that I believe are going to relate so many ways to the world we live in today and even where we find ourselves now as a church and um, as believers in this world that seems to be spinning out of control faster than ever. Uh, With the UN just several days ago saying that there should be no age of consent for children uh, basically around the world, that's in our public schools now, that's coming. Just free reign, pedophilia, Father, we live in a time when Parents must stand up and stop being afraid of making waves to protect their kids. And we as Christians must be willing to, to take the cost to engage in this battle and to sacrifice, to do what we can to come alongside parents and to help them, Lord, in educating their children and to keep them safe. A five-year-old cannot be a Christian witness and go into a war zone of Al-Qaeda, which is what our public schools are. Father, I pray that you would give parents boldness and grandparents help us to depend on you in prayer. But as we see in Nehemiah today, give us righteous anger, God, and let us stop being wimps and compromising as your people. Raise up your church. Do a revival again, we ask and we pray. In Jesus' name. Well, if you take out your notes again, I don't have any blanks for you to fill in like last week, but I'd encourage you to jot notes down, underline words, that type of thing. It'll help you retain more um, of what I'm going to say. Here in Nehemiah chapter 5, I have titled the message as we continue the series, Rebuilding Through Partnership Series. Uh, Again, to remind us, first of all, like Nehemiah, we need to be in partnership with the Lord. We need to be in sync with Him. And secondly, we have to partner with others. We cannot do it alone. I I put there at the end here of the message like I did last week. You cannot do it alone. Prayer to the Lord and partnership with others is a requirement. We have to be right with God, just like we see Nehemiah set an example in his life, and we can't do it alone. And I shared with you, I believe largely last week, how that was my biggest mistake. I depended on God, but I didn't really depend on others. I wasn't, uh, not, not that you need to be transparent about everything, but I wasn't transparent enough to lean on others to partner with me in prayer. And, and you need that. We all need that. We're not called to go through the battle alone. Uh, Charles Spurgeon then was mightily used by God. So many people coming to the church wanting to hear the gospel. He could not preach through books of the Bible. He had to have a gospel message every week. Uh, mega church back in the 1800s, I believe before there were microphones, and um, he, he had to turn away, the church had to turn away Christians from coming to church because there were so many unbelievers coming. Can you imagine that type of thing going on in a nation? And when, when people came to him and asked him, Spurgeon, what, why are you so successful? Why have you written probably more words in the English language than any other person in history? Uh, why have you preached more sermons probably than anybody else? Why have you started like 66 ministries and mentored hundreds of, of up-and-coming pastors in your lifetime and battled bipolar your entire ministry as well? How have you done this, Spurgeon? He says, it's simple. My people pray for me. 200 men would go down to the basement, or 300, depending on what you say. An American businessman, I think the story goes, came over. They, they wanted to see the church. They wanted to see what you know, was going on. And, and they wanted to know Spurgeon's secret on how to grow a big church. And he took them to the basement and he showed them all those people praying. That's what he said. And I told you, I believe it was last week, that you know, with everything I've been going through, I, I really believe our church has come together in prayer as it never has before. And I'm excited about what that means. Because God brings a church together. Look at the book of Acts. In prayer. There's an old saying, or maybe it's a new saying, but I heard it not that long ago, that if you want to know the real size of a church, look at the size of the prayer meeting Prayer is so important, it's not optional. Um, it's not less important than prayer. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, which is more important, prayer or reading the Bible? Well, you tell me, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? We need both. We need God's Word for our sustenance. It's more important than food. And we need that spiritual strength. And, and we need to depend on Him in prayer. And, uh, and to learn to pray his word, Not to just pray our, our wish list or even a prayer list of just people that are suffering. Not to say those things aren't important, but so often Satan does a great job derailing churches by us just making a big list of everybody's suffering or having massive praise reports. And then we never really get to seeking God. We never really get to crying out in prayer from our hearts. Look at the Psalms. The majority of the Psalms, they are crying out from the depths of their soul to God. The early church in the book of Acts is doing that, and God responds to that. When we seek him, when we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost, everything else falls in line. So we gotta be partnered with the Lord, partnered with each other. We can only rebuild that way. The title of the message this morning is Oppression Dealt With and an Outflow of Generosity Going on at the Same Time. We see so much oppression in our world, and yet, at the same time in the story today with Nehemiah, we're gonna see not only massive oppression going on of the people, but also massive generosity. And I think we've even seen that. We see our world spinning out of control last week, we see violence increasing. We saw that in in all the threats and stuff in the message last week in chapter four, where they constantly had to stay vigilant. Can't give You got to rest at the right time, not give up just when it gets hard. You got to hold that line and be ready to both have your trial to keep rebuilding and your sword and to hold your role. And, And you have to remember, we're not fighting this alone. As it said back in chapter four and verse 10, that our God will fight for us. And I share with you that illustration when the Israelites were uh, leaving Egypt and they had their back against the Red Sea and they're terrified. Moses was led by the Lord to tell them, stand still and see your God fight for you. You don't have to fight for yourself. Spiritual warfare is totally mistaught many times. We're supposed to stand on God's word, but show me in the Bible where it says we're supposed to take authority over Satan and demons and hell. Never have I found that in Scripture. I find in the book of Jude, an angel rebuke a demonic force that we Satan himself and say, the Lord rebuke you. The angel doesn't even say, I take authority over you in the name of God. We hear that type of stuff, but God will fight for us if we depend on him. And so when we stand firm in this battle, we have to do that. Everything going on this week, I shared some of that with you. I, I prayed for hours. I didn't turn back to workaholism like I would have done in the past before sabbatical. I spent hours and hours and hours in prayer. Not to make me sound super spiritual. It was not easy. And God responded, and God responded with dreams and with encouragement at the right time. And I, it was such a long story. I talked for three hours just about the last week if I pointed to everything God did. But he sends just the right time, right thing at just the right time, and he fights for us, spiritual warfare is real. And the reason why we don't usually experience it, I firmly believe, is because we're really not that spiritual. We're comfortable with staying far from God. We're comfortable being familiar with God, but we don't want intimacy with Him. And so we stay back, and, and, and familiarity with God is the biggest danger in our Christian walk. We hear the songs, we sing them, we check the box, we go to church, we do Bible study. But if our heart's not in it with childlike faith like we're meant to have, we miss the passion. And many of you are experiencing that for the first time you've shared with me. Perhaps in your whole life, you're, you're reading through the Bible. You're reading through with joy. You're having things jump out at you. Your prayer life has been reinvigorated. We're, we're not doing discipleship the way most churches do it because we're not concerned about the numbers. We're concerned about making disciples. We're concerned about talking about these truths that for so often in our denomination, even now, and in the American church, people don't care about it. We just want more numbers. And so get somebody to repeat a prayer, get them baptized, get them to be a church member, go be part of Sunday school, and figure it all out on your own. And we spiritually abandon people, rather than walk with them. And that's not just a pastor's job, but it has to start with the pastor. It takes you all, and you all have stepped up so much in this time. So um, we're gonna see here, Nehemiah is gonna deal with oppression. This is not a popular topic, but in the midst of oppression, you're gonna see Nehemiah get angry as a leader, but he gets angry, right way and I don't have a ton of notes we'll see how much of previous church experiences comes out in this story but I can tell you this is something as a leader that if you're going to serve God you have to get angry about sin in the church especially when a church votes against you to continue in sin and it may cost you um, my first church I was there for about a year and it was a horror story. I had to deal with stopping a church discipline issue before I ever even was officially pastor. Within two weeks of being there, uh, there was no honeymoon phase at that church. Within two weeks of being there, there were police on the parking lot making accusations against the children's worker. The church was not following the stuff they told me in the process they were. I don't get on the details of that, but I have to talk to police. I have to give them my social security number. They have to do an investigation. Parents are making accusations. I've been there two weeks, and I'm 25, and I have no support, and I don't know what to do. You go right in from that, just a couple hours later, I had my first deacons meeting, I had my first church council meeting, which we planned the next quarter for that, and there was tension and underhanded, shady stuff going on there. I wouldn't find out for for another month or two. And then going to my very first business meeting, I never really had those. Every church I had been in was fairly healthy in terms of trusting leadership up to that point, and trusting our pastors, and and having strong leaders in that sense. Not that anybody was perfect. Um, But I even went through one church where we had a deacon uh, what, what, what we, we didn't call him deacons, but it was that type of thing. Uh, he was a good friend of mine, and he was unfaithful to his wife. He told the, the church in a Bible study, and we removed him from leadership. The, the church walked with him, walked with his wife, saw restoration of the marriage. We eventually restored him to his role as a deacon as well, and, and, and the story there was amazing. He told us that. He had repented before God. He didn't go into details, and you got to be careful when you share your testimony, not going into too much that would then cause somebody else to sin. Anyway, we we knew that, and our church surrounded that couple. So many of the couples in the church surrounded them with love and prayer support, and then God just started to do stuff. He began having health problems and had to have surgery. She went to a marriage retreat. They went to a marriage retreat together with our church. She fell off a horse and broke her neck. They had to stay home together for like six weeks to, to a couple months, and God used that to restore their marriage. I don't believe it's biblical to write somebody off when God restores there's no unforgivable sin. That's not popular in our denomination. That's not popular even amongst a lot of my pastor friends. Well, if something like that's happened, Ryan, you should never restore somebody. Well, what about David? We need to be biblical, not just caught up in whatever Southern Baptist tradition is. I don't care what Southern Baptist tradition is. I don't even care what other pastors say. Not that I'm trying to go against my fellow pastor friends. But if it doesn't line up with the Bible, we got to stand on the Bible. And there's no unforgivable sin in the gospel. And any of us can commit any sin at any time but for the grace of God. So all of that stuff happened in the first church. Continued on. Then there was somebody that sued the church. Got in a car accident. It's thing after thing after thing. People yelling at me two minutes before I got to get up and preach, basically. Uh, And a lot of other things I won't get into. It finally came down to, on my mom's birthday... Oh, by the way, the church... Well, I won't say that... um, On my mom's birthday, August sixteenth, twenty twenty, I'll never forget because it was her birthday. We had a business meeting, horrific church business meeting. One person literally tried to take a swing at another. I had to try to ask people, "Will you help me separate them?" And nobody wanted to do anything. My personnel committee tried to, behind the scenes, give me and the deacons a letter and, and try to blackmail me to be silent and do what they wanted. I looked at my deacons and said. I don't believe any of this is true. I'm pretty angry. You tell me if it is, because here's how I'm going to handle this. 30 minutes, 45 minutes when we go to that business meeting, I'm reading this letter to the church. Because you have to expose this type of thing. You can't just not deal with it. And what's going to happen tonight, I even told them, is they're either going to be on church discipline and out of power, or I'm going to leave. That is what has to happen. And so I walked into that meeting. And began to have my character assassinated and told up and down all this different stuff, and I started to defend myself and I stopped. And we had we had a cross up in, in the back above our that uh, was illuminated with lights above our um, our baptismal, and that was on. We we had a really big church um, sanctuary that could sit like 250 people, and. Uh, so everybody liked they liked in business meetings to go to the back. They didn't want to be too close to the front, which I think is because they would be convicted. So we have the lights off in the, the front, and I could see this illuminated cross. And as, as I was gonna defend myself, I didn't have to stop. I just had to turn around and look at the cross and remember, Jesus didn't say anything to defend himself. He just took it. And so I took it. I didn't say anything. And it came down to the vote, and it was almost 50-50. Turned in my key, I walked out. I wasn't in there, but I was told later on there was cheering by the group that thought they had won. The chairman of the deacons walked out right behind me. He said he was with me from the beginning. He and his wife walked out, they left the church as well. On the parking lot, I did everything I could to encourage people. I don't usually cry, but I was in tears. Because I had one person telling me, Ryan. Because this is the history of this particular congregation, just split, go up the street, start no church. I say, I will not do that. Temptations came like that right away, literally within a minute. Well, just go start no church. I will not do that. And I'm on the parking lot talking with people that are brokenhearted. You, you can't leave, Ryan. You can't not be our pastor. I, I can't stay. You want me to stay as chaplain? You want me to teach you the Bible? But you won't let me be your pastor. You won't let me. You'll let me preach what the Bible says, but you won't let me lead you to stand what it says. And so. I don't know, an hour or two on the parking lot, I'm crying with people, I'm encouraging them as they're in tears, they're broken hearted, they're angry, I encourage them, don't give up on the church, you may not be able to come to this church, but find a place where you can find healing, don't give up on Jesus, don't give up on him, called Brother Chad on my way home after that, let him know what had happened a little bit, and said, I really hope that God uses this to somehow help the church, because there's so many spiritual strongholds here, and Hopefully God will use it to turn things around, and sadly, I don't think it ever has, uh, which is still a burden because I still live not that far away. And my, I had a pastor friend I went and talked to within a few days that told me what I went, was going through was like divorce because of the relationship of a pastor and a church. And I went through that. I went to my previous pastor at Faith, uh, Faith Baptist. So you've talked with him, or you know, you know, we've been talking with them some, and. I told him, look, I'm not asking to come lead. I'm not asking to come be a member or anything. I just need to sit on the back row and heal for like six to eight weeks. And both he and Brother Chad told me, don't you wait too long. You need to jump in. You need to get back in ministry. Don't wait too long. But I benched myself for six to eight weeks. Began to get the phone calls from people Ryan, you never should have been pastor. You should be an associate pastor. You're not ready. You're not a strong enough leader. You're not good enough. Only a few pastors would come alongside me and, and support me. The ones that, that did support me tried to fix me. They told me my issue was leadership. I wasn't a good enough leader. I wasn't strong enough. And I told you last week, they tried to teach me, based on our denominational training, how to manipulate people and how to be a strong leader and not be transparent. Jesus was a servant leader. He was not a strong leader. who just kept everything tied up in himself. And so I rejected that stuff. Even though I read the books and I went through the process, I submitted to my fellow pastors in that. And within a matter of weeks, I was asked to go to Bloomsdale Baptist because their pastor had resigned, and they had a lot of—I well, won't go into everything—but they had a lot of things going on. But they were broken, and I was able to come. And I had preached there shortly before I had gone to my first church, and so they were willing to listen to me. And they called me the all-business pastor because they always asked me to come on business meetings Sundays, and I would tell them hard things. Y'all know that I can be blunt but you also know my tone when I'm blind. And I helped them walk through that. They asked me to stay, and I said, I can't stay as your pastor. It was too similar to what I had left, but I loved them, and I helped prepare the way with Nathan, one of my friends of mine. We were on the interim preaching team and helped prepare the way for Brother Paul. And then after Brother Paul came, after I was already serving you, he asked me to come back and serve as a consultant. So the the bond between our two churches goes way back far beyond you probably ever knew. At the same time, our bond with Sandy Baptist Church is because God brought redemption out of something very painful that happened in all of this. Jason is a good friend of mine. He walked with me through that process probably more than anybody else. He had been through some things. Well, I I won't go into that. Um, He asked me to begin helping them on their church revitalization team and helping with their revitalization process. We began a 10-month process of me coming on as As an associate pastor of discipleship administration, focusing on all the stuff I love and not having to deal with all the leadership stuff that I wasn't ready to deal with again. I didn't want to deal with that type of thing again, but I was fine supporting him. And so I did all types of things with them. I went through church discovery workshop type stuff with them. I trained their leaders. I, I did a church assessment. I came and attended, told them what I thought. They weren't necessarily too happy with me, but, but God has used all these things over the years to help me be able to walk into churches. And in one or two weeks, I can tell you exactly who I'm going to have problems with. I can tell you exactly what the sin issues are with a lot of accuracy and exactly what the process forward needs to be. So I worked with them for 10 months. The process of coming on kept getting delayed because they had two younger leaders that basically denied their faith. And so they didn't trust younger leaders because of that. And it finally came down to after 10 months... Where, um, where the church wanted to make a statement, not really about me, but, but to make a statement because of their control issues against Jason. They, they did not, they voted when I was not there and when Jason was not there, just barely so that I would not be hired. And they came back after me serving them for 10 months, every chance I had, other than doing interim stuff and supporting myself. They told me that they would offer me less than 50% of the salary they were gonna give me, and I had to work for them for free for 90 days. And so all that happened, I said, no, I'm done. That's too petty. Went and talked with Brother Chad, and I knew Brother Brandon would be resigning soon. He said, it's probably a good place for you, stay six months, stay something like that, see if it, you know, I was not ready to make any commitment to stay anywhere long-term, but I came and it's like, this is such a loving church. There's some things that have to be dealt with. I knew the exact people that there's been conflict with from day one that would have to be dealt with. I may have waited too long with that. Um, but I knew that from day one, pretty much. And God allowed me to come and be able to heal and get some strength back and walk this whole process, you know, a lot more of that since then. But my point is, when we talk about Sandy Baptist being so close as a sister church and, and about about Bloomsdale being so close. That's because these churches have been, I've been through a lot with them and the things they've heard through and, and their pastors know and trust me and they're your good friends. And so the reason why it's so strong is because it's been such a biblical way of being the body of Christ as churches together. And whatever happens in our denomination, I really believe we're going to still have that strength with those fellow churches and my buddy Grant that you've all met, he's serving at Sandy. And I trained him as he got started in ministry um, while I was here serving at Lebanon. So there's so many ways all of these stories are tied together. There's, there's the beautiful redemption of God that even in Romans 8:28, where where he says that God works all things together for good. Not that everything was good. Those certainly were not good things. But for those who are believers, God works it together for good. And as I've begun to share this story with more people... And finally, got into a healthier place myself. There's still the, there's still the, um, as as I've been told, um, how is it exactly worded? Um, Basically, that when you carry wounds, there there's a cost, and there's a cost to healing, and it takes time, and, and there's physiological effects when you've carried these types of things for so long. But God has used and is using that healing process to help a lot of other people to begin to be transparent in our church, beyond our church. Um, Anyway, I'll stop there because I know I've added a lot. But really what we see in the text today, I think, my own story, it also ties so much into what we see Nehemiah do. I'm not trying to uh, interpret the text through my story, but it certainly applies to what we're going to see here. So let's dive in in verses 1 and 2. There's oppression in the first 13 verses of this chapter. There's oppression, and then we're going to see Um, First of all, here in the first two verses, families are affected. Families are affected when there's an oppressive force at work in society and the government. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us eat grain that we may eat and live. Families, notice here, are affected. Notice secondly in verse 3, there are mortgages. Debt is going to be finding uh, uh, binding families, and then in verse four we're going to see this debt is not like just consumer debt. This was debt because of the poverty they lived in for necessities and taxes. They had to borrow money, and they're going to have to sell their sons and daughters into indentured servitude in order to just have food on the table. This was a horrible time. Verse three, and, and bear in mind this was a horrible time in fulfillment of prophecy that God would bring the people back to the land. He took care of them while they were exiled, gave them houses and vineyards and told them, have your sons and daughters get married, have children. Do not decrease, but increase. And that ties into all the family planning stuff I've been talking about. We as Christians, I know far too many couples that are either never going to have children or have already uh, decided and made it that they will never have any because they are Christians but they are so afraid of the world we live in they won't bring children into that is not a response of Christian faith. That is a response of fear. And we're called to live by faith. If God's the creator of life, then we never have to worry about God giving the gift of life. He gives it at the right time. But we don't live by faith. We say we're living by faith, and we say these things are optional today. Those aren't really biblical issues. I don't see how they can be an amoral decision how can it be a neutral decision if God's word has told us so many things clearly? Verse 3 and 4. There also were some who said we have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. They've had to mortgage their house. They did to get like a second mortgage. They had to refinance that type of thing just so that they can get what they need in a famine that's going on. Verse 4. There were also those who said we have borrowed money for the king's tax. They have to borrow money to pay their taxes on our lands and our vineyards. Then notice in verse verse 5. I've already mentioned the famine. This was a survival season. They were not thriving. Notice in verse 5. All of this meant that their children became enslaved. They enslaved their children. You heard me talk about public education today? How many parents are choosing to let their children be enslaved? How is two hours in church on a Sunday, maybe, going to reverse, you sending your children somewhere for 40 hours a week, teaching them everything godless, and you don't disciple your own children at home, you expect the church to do it? There's a reason why I've said everything I have about children's ministry from the very beginning, because it is an idol that so many Christian couples depend on. We will do our best, but we can never replace you as parents and grandparents in your children's lives. You reading the Bible, like, you don't have to have all the answers. You reading the Bible and praying with your family, man, with your wives, that makes all the difference. You do that, the statistics are there. It's like 97% of the time, your family is going to follow your lead if you do that. 97%. If mom alone does it, it's like 17% of the time. If kids alone do it, and so often we focus on reaching kids first, 3 to 4% of the time, the family will follow if we reach kids first. Only 3 to 4% of the time. Now, we don't place our faith in statistics. But in the book of Acts, they never started children's ministry. Has Satan deceived us to keep us from preaching the gospel to adults? From calling parents to be who they're meant to be? From calling men to the role God's created them to be? These things all the way back in Genesis matter. There's a reason why Satan attacks them. If he can get us to have no purpose, if he can remove God as creator, if if we're just purposeless, mindless blobs, cosmic accidents, and there's no God... No wonder we see the world how it is today, and no wonder the Christians that choose to believe the same thing have such weak faith and are so compromised and anemic spiritually, and their witness is so distasteful to a watching world. We go on here to, well, did I read verse 5? I don't think I did. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. Now imagine that, men. Because of your choices, that your daughters become slaves. Can you imagine the emotional toll that would have on you as a dad? If you gave up your little girl because of your choices, financially, and because of the world you lived in. It goes on to say, imagine how heartbreaking this would be. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our hands in vineyards. These men could not provide and protect for their own families. Imagine what that would do to your psyche as a man. Notice how Nehemiah is going to respond, because he responds the right way. And many people today in the church will tell you he responds in an unbiblical way. But he's not responding in an unbiblical way. He's responding the way we should. Verses 6 through 13, we see Nehemiah gets very, very angry. Because he's the governor. And he can deal with this stuff, he can make a difference. It's his responsibility to. And he's going to have a righteous anger. He's going to be blunt. He's going to be direct. He's going to deal with things. Verse 6. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I want us to take a little moment here to remember some things Scripture says about anger. So if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, first of all, I know last week I didn't really turn to any cross-references, but I'm going to read several large sections of Scripture elsewhere today, and the first point is in Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to make this point. Anger is an emotion. Now, we have a society today of quack psychologists that tell us there's positive and negative emotions. There's emotion. You're a human being. You're going to get angry sometimes. It's an emotion. But scripture is going to tell us be angry and sin not. Whether or not your anger is sinful is how you respond to it. If you go too far, then that is a matter of sin. But your tone and the way you handle things, and being upfront and being blunt is not, speaking the truth is not a bad thing. We have far too many people who think we just need to be good, silent Christians. Remember the words of Ezekiel. If you won't tell them, and I'm paraphrasing, remember if you won't tell them, Ezekiel, what I've told you to preach to them, that you will have their blood on your hands as a preacher, as a prophet. But if you tell them what I've told you, your hands will be clean, and what they do with it is up to them. Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor there's the truth thing for we are members of one another It's a reason why you need a church family we need one another living the Christian life without a covenantal blessing of church membership is a lot like living life living with someone who's not your spouse and never entering into a covenant be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your wrath. How often do we let things stew for multiple days? Rather than not letting a day go by before we make things right, before we apologize. If we live that way, our world, our churches would be a whole lot different. But instead, we let Satan make us afraid of conflict. And we clam up and we refuse to humble ourselves. And when we do that, Satan gets a foothold and he nurses the hurt. And he gets strongholds in our lives. It affects us many ways. That's what it says in verse 27, what I just said about a foothold. Nor give place to the devil. Don't give an open door to Satan. God's word's been given to us for a reason. It's, it's timeless, it's timelessly relevant, it's very clear. You don't even have to really think too hard about how to apply this. But when we don't do it, we give Satan an open door. And while I do not believe that Satan can ever possess a believer, he can oppress a believer. Verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands for what is good. Notice the change of the gospel. Whatever you once were in Christ, that's gone. You're a new creation. During everything that went on this past week, I had a friend that called me up and said, Ryan, you've got to stop being so hard on yourself. You're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And yeah, I have for probably at least half my life. He said, you have to be so worried about the fact that you've made a mistake or even that you've sinned, not to minimize sin, But he said, You have to recognize God is bigger than your mistakes. And you can trust Him that He can can take whatever mess you've gotten into or whatever mistake you've made. You've got to realize you're human and that God is bigger than whatever it is. Stop worrying. So, what if you make a mistake? You're going to. You're human. Not to minimize sin, but you can't carry that burden on your own. That's a powerful lesson I had to learn. And when I shared that with Hannah yesterday, she's like, you put exactly into words what I have been learning this week as well. goes on to say, rather let them labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Why do we work? We work so that we can be generous. The point of working is not, to just, not that it's unwise to save for the future. There's proverbs about that and prudence and investing. Nothing wrong with that. There's many scriptures. But why do we work so that we can be generous? The point of ever being wealthy, and wealth in my opinion is simply you have more food and water and shelter than you need today. You can live in a tent. They did it for 40 years as Israelites. Missionaries do it today. You don't need really that much if you think about it to survive day to day. Why does God give us wealth so that we can be generous? It's not about holding on to it. Here's the thing. If you struggle with greed, you will struggle with greed whether you have $1, $100, or a $1,000,000. It doesn't matter. We work. So that we can have something to be generous to those that need him, who has need. And this is going to play a factor in what we're going to see Nehemiah do, exactly. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth for what is good, for necessary edification. Say what's necessary, say what's truthful. Do it with, as I shared last week, gentleness and respect and brokenness for the other person's spiritual well-being. Not just so you can look better or be better than them. If you're broken for them, and that's the way I went to our Southern Baptist president. I did not go to him in his face, pointing a finger. I said, I went to him broken, clearly in my demeanor, clearly in my words, and he just looked at me and said, it's not a matter of sin. Well, he said, I I don't need to repent. I think that was the exact words for anything. And basically, it's a neutral matter, and he just turned away and started talking to somebody else. We are to go to someone brokenhearted. Jesus has laid out in Matthew 18 how we deal with church conflict. That's why... Some of you know the stories, now we can all the details, but why, when we had that here several months ago, I had two people sit down in the same room. Why others will not be allowed to continue to try to exert power? Because we must stand on the truth of God's word. It's not because I'm on a power trip. I don't like this stuff. But Jesus has told us what to do. And we have to do what his word says. And let the, whatever the consequences be, remain with you. Charles Stanley passed away this last week, I believe. Great man of God, I remember one of his quotes. And, you know, all these old guys that have been so faithful are dying, and it's like, Lord, raise up more, because I don't know many people my age that actually believe the book anymore. I know a lot of people in seminary I've gone to that they compromise left and right, and most of their churches probably don't even know how unchristian they really are if they dove into it. But one thing I remember from Charles Stanley is that he said, one of his famous statements, I think it came from his grandfather, who was very influential in his life, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. That's how we have to live. Let no corrupt word, verse 29, proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. This is about true grace, not sloppy grace. And again, I can get a whole long story That was my first church that threw away the true grace of God to embrace cheap grace, this new tolerance type thing. And it's ruined the church 10 years later. I think it's devoid of the gospel now. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know who you need to be concerned about grieving? The Lord. Don't compare yourself to other people. I was told when I was 16... And I was kidnapped by, well not really, my parents knew about it. I was kidnapped by some men that were very influential in my life to have a walk to manhood. And I went up this this path and there were always tiki torches and each guy that was influential in my life, uh, there were like six or seven of them, they would each give me a piece of advice I needed to know about life. And one of the guys gave me a couple pieces of advice and one of them was, Ryan, beware of comparison. Don't let other people compare themselves for you because I was 16, a lot of people already, I was very successful in some things. And a lot of people were beginning to compare other young friends of mine to me. He said, you put an end to that. And he said, you always compare yourself to Jesus. Never compare yourself to other people. Be concerned about grieving God. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another. Tender hearted. When I went through all the stuff I've been through, I was told multiple times, Ryan, don't let it make you become jaded. Because what most pastors do, and a whole lot of pastors, go through two or three really sucky churches as they start their ministry. It's very common. Because you're not going to usually start out in a healthy place. Healthy places are not willing to take a risk on you because you haven't had any fire applied to you yet to see how you stand under pressure. But don't let, it, don't let what happens to so many pastors happen. So many pastors become hard-hearted, and every three years they have their sermons, they go preach them at another church, they stop growing spiritually, they look spiritual, but that's just what they do. They go into another church, they preach the exact same sermons, they get tired of it, or conflict happens, they don't want to deal with it, and they just continue to be part of the problem. Rather, be tender-hearted. There's a cost and a pain to being tender-hearted. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus was a man well acquainted with sorrows and grief. And there's a unique way that you will bear that if you choose to obey God and let Him keep your heart soft. It will hurt when things happen. But don't forget the next part, it's so important forgiving one another. Don't be bitter. I forgave from the very beginning. I had to deal with the effects. I didn't feel forgiven. And many times in the church we say, forgive and forget. You're a human. You're probably never gonna forget unless God does a miracle. The Apostle Paul knew his past, and there were churches that never accepted him and never believed he was a genuine Christian because of his past. His entire life in ministry. Think about that burden. But he forgave. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it is not an emotion, it is a choice. Is an act of the will. Even as God in Christ forgave you, the gospel applies to everything. Everything. Paul always talks about things, then he shows us how the gospel relates to it. Let's go back to our main passage. Or, pardon me, uh, I'm going to go back to... Matthew chapter 5 I'm going to go through these a little more quickly so just bear with me uh, hate is murder in Matthew chapter 5 I'm actually not going to read it for sake of time here because I still got a lot to get through I'm sure hopefully you're familiar with the passage where Jesus tells us that hating someone is equivalent to murder and that's what I mean here and you can go back and check me on that in Matthew chapter 5 and then in 1 John chapter 3 however these are some verses that I do want to make sure and read I believe 1 John chapter 3, verses 15, and then verse 20. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Pretty strong words. We have to forgive. But remember this, if you jump down to verse 20, well, but Brother Ryan, what if I have hated before? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Somebody's asking that question today. Verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. First John is all about the birthmarks of the believer, the evidences that we are believers or not. A true believer, it doesn't mean that they've never hated or never sinned, but they're not living under condemnation, as Romans 8 says. There's no longer, therefore, any condemnation in Jesus but even if our heart condemns us, and is getting his, his, you know, fork in there edgewise, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. He knows who are His. He walks with us through all those things. If you don't believe me that genuine Christians can battle with this stuff, just go back and read the Bible. There are no rose-colored glasses. Abraham was not a perfect man. Jacob was not a perfect man. Solomon was maybe the wisest man, but he was really an idiot because he had a, a thousand wives. Same thing with David, man after God's own heart for 300. We can trust God. And then lastly there, anger is sinful based upon our response. And I already read the verses back in uh, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Alright, back to our main passage and we'll, we'll get moving pretty quickly here. How does Nehemiah respond? He rebukes. Rebuke is not unloving. And I could preach a whole sermon right there. But rebuke is not unloving. Rebuke is actually one of the most loving things you can do. And it's one of the things that very few people are willing to do. My whole life in ministry, I've longed to be in churches. I've told my pastors every time, I want you to hold me accountable. I don't want you to be afraid to kick me if I need it. Rebuke me if I need it. And they wouldn't do it. I had to walk on my own. Rebuke is a blessing. It protects you. It's a healthy place to be somewhere. Not that's... Watching every nook and cranny and to just pounce on you, but then we'll biblically rebuke. Verses six and seven. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry against these words. After serious thought. Did you notice that? Verse 7. After serious thought, Nehemiah doesn't just jump and pounce, he thinks. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, the people that were causing the issue, and said to them, which is basically like the politicians and the leaders. Each of you is exacting usury from his brother, so I called a great assembly against them. Nehemiah doesn't just go to them one-on-one because this has been a public offense. Why did I go to the Southern Baptist person, uh, Baptist President in person? Why did I make it public in a post? Because they are public leaders. You call an assembly against them. Because if they will not repent, and even if they do repent, a leader is accountable to repent in public, not just in private. Because of the responsibility they bear. When I've been wrong, and I've had to repent of things in ministry, I've had to do so publicly. When I've preached something wrong, and God's correcting me on that, and even though it's been public, I've many times lost a lot of friends because of it. We have to rebuke, at times, in public, depending on the nature of what it is. Notice in verse 7, Nehemiah deals with the issue Usury Usury is exorbitant interest It's like the idea of, of payday loans Oppressive type of interest That they, they prey upon people That are really having a hard time financially or, or that are just really foolish with their finances And so it's incredibly crazy Outrageous types of interest That you have to pay on those loans It's predatory lending That's what usury is It's, it's credit card interest Scripture always warns us about debt There's a reason why we focused on getting out of debt so quickly as a church. We didn't have a lot, but there's a reason why this matters. Because it's going to affect your ability to be able to serve God. And so many pastors are in the same boat. If you have debt as a pastor, it hinders you from being able to do what God's called you to do. Our missions organization, even our denomination, they may let you have a little bit, but I think they don't even allow you to have any debt, if I'm not mistaken. If you want to go to the mission field and you have debt, they make you wait until you get your life cleaned up. They expect, and, and I can tell you story after story of missionaries that God miraculously in a couple of years, a couple called to go to the mission field, God gives them incredible jobs, they knock debt out left and right, and then they go. Debt matters. We gotta treat it more seriously than we do. It hinders us from doing what God's called us to do. We're, we're spending interest on our uh, presumption of the future rather than trusting God. Many times God will provide if we simply will wait on him. And I do think there are some exceptions to that, and, and there can be perhaps wise mortgages and stuff if it's not oppressive. They're, you know, medical debt's a whole different story. That's about life. But that's not what this was. This was oppressing the people that could not even feed their own families in the midst of all this going on, and leaders taking advantage of them. Sounds like Washington, D.C. today, does it not? Senators and politicians that can enslave my generation and my children's generation and my grandchildren's generation with all this stupid debt that we don't need just because they're in power. If I was ever in politics, that's the very first thing we do. We're going to cut a bunch of stuff because we don't need the massive welfare programs we have. Go get a job. You know how many people will not be allowed to get married because if you get married, you lose benefits? Did you know that the federal government wants women To have children out of wedlock, give them to the state to raise them. All the laws are set up this way. But if you get married, they make it harder for you financially. They make it harder for those that do things God's way and get married. We as Christians have to live by faith. And we have to trust God and obey what his word says. So he deals with the issue. Verse 8. Oppressors were silenced and they're exposed for their wrong. And I said to them, remember this is in public, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? And they were silenced and found nothing to say. You know, criminals are like cockroaches. Those that are living in sin hate the light. When you bring the light on things, people shut up. Because they can't stand against you. You know, when everything started with the family planning thing, At first, some pastors were really angry with me. Some of them began to say very way over the line things. I wasn't courting Hannah at that point, but they began to say things basically about her with what I was saying. But it's very interesting that they were silenced very quickly. Because when you stand on the truth of God's Word, there's something that tends to happen that Satan and his work is silenced because it can't stand against the truth of God's word doesn't mean it's always that way look at what Jesus endured but many times it will be that way and when we stand on truth and say it gently gentleness can break a bone and that's being happened. there's some other pastors that may not agree with me but they can't disagree with me anymore the way they were I'm not saying that to make something of myself. I am not. I am a sinful person. But oppressors were silenced and they're exposed for their wrong. Verse 9. He exhorts them to walk in the fear of God. Then I said, what you were doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Fear of God matters. One of the things I do is, and I get phone calls sometimes at midnight. There's a couple guys that I... I walk through it with the times that are dealing with the struggle of pornography. Seven, out of, seven to eight out of ten men in the church deal with that. Four out of ten women deal with that. It's not just a guy issue. Now, I don't mess with helping women on this, but when, when guys will call me up, you know, it may be a midnight thing, and they may either not be taking it serious enough and have to kick them in the butt, or they may be so broken hard enough they feel they're never going to come back from this, and then you got to apply grace, but, but the point is, I constantly have to remind them of the fear of God. Because in my own life, I had a mentor when I was a teenager who almost destroyed his life and his marriage because of pornography. And it put a lot of fear of God in me. And I can honestly say, God has protecting me from ever getting into that. Not that I've never seen things in this crazy world I wish I wouldn't have because we live in a horrible society. But fear of God is what keeps you away from sin. We need a whole lot more fear of God and less familiarity with God. We treat Jesus like our boyfriend so often, rather, or a vending machine, rather than working out our salvation before him with fear and trembling, as the Bible says. So notice, Nehemiah tells them, and exhorts them, you should fear God. Verse 10, we're going to see that the lending... Needs to not be usurious, and I've already talked about that and defined that. So verse 10, I also, with my brethren and my servants, notice Nehemiah doesn't do it alone. He has other people around him in this process. Am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Over in the book of Proverbs, it talks about he who lends to the poor, lends to the Lord. Those who are truly in need, we are supposed to help. That's why when we get phone calls at churches and stuff, oh, I need gas money. I never respond to that stuff. I've been around long enough. I know you do that. People's going to call their friends and you pay another. That's not helping anybody. We're not, a, we're not a social club. We're not a community service wing. We are supposed to, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, practice benevolence first and foremost amongst our own church family. Those who are truly in need, whose own families refuse to care for them. The Bible talks about all this stuff. We just don't do it the way the Bible says. Nothing wrong with doing something kind to those who are poor outside the church. But why does it have to be through the church? Why can't you as a church member just privately do that between you and God? We see Nehemiah and his team do this. They help those that are in need. We then see, um, let's see, did I read verse Verse 11.
1: Yeah, verse 11, restore now
0: to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also one hundredth of the money in the grain. So so give them back some of what you've stolen. Not just restore everything that you've taken predatorily from them and cancel the debt, but give them one hundredth of the money in the grain and the provisions back. Make restitution not only give back what you've stolen, because that's really what they've done. Give it of the grain, the new wine, the oil that you have charged him. And then we get into verse 12. Nehemiah requires an oath. He requires a promise. He doesn't just say, do this and let him off the hook. He says, Leaders, you gotta make a promise. You gotta take an oath. You gotta make a commitment for what you've been called to do. Verse 12. So they said, We will restore it. And we'll do, uh, and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests, so he brings the spiritual leaders into this, and they required an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. We tell politicians to take oaths on the Bible. However, we've had one president, if I'm not mistaken, take an oath on the Koran. Why do we have that in our society? Because taking an oath in the fear of God matters. If you don't, you will simply be doing things in your own strength. Verse 13, shake garments as a witness, consequences of breaking an oath. You you may bear this in mind, Jesus tells the disciples to shake out their garments and witness against somebody, right, in the New Testament? Verse 13, Nehemiah. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. He has that signal, that symbol of shaking his clothes out in the Old Testament as a a symbol against them. And then we wrap up in the last five verses. Generosity. Generosity Verses 14 through 19. First of all, we're going to notice Nehemiah largely paid his own way. He secured support. Remember, God gave him the support of the king. He's coming on his own expense. He's going to refuse to take a burden upon the people because other governors have done that. Instead, he wants to be there and be, there, there be an appropriate burden. I'm just going to go through all this and then I'll read it. He's going to say, pay me less, essentially. Nehemiah is going to do this because he fears God more than worried about his own Pocketbook. He's going to uh, expand his table and entertain hospitality to an extended amount of guests on his own dime. He is going to uh, not demand support, similar to the Apostle Paul, for sake of time. I won't go into all that today, but we talked about some of that early on when I came here. I think the first or second time, because I was going through uh, 1 Corinthians. And Paul talks about how he he did not allow the church in Corinth to pay him anything. Because one, most likely, the context of that was... um, he was in a city where there was all types of false religions. People had been to religion, have a lot of followers. So he didn't want that to happen. And secondly, he needed to really treat them like spiritual children. They, they were very spiritually mature, even you know, a couple years later probably, when he's writing letters to them and visiting them and helping them. And um, so he refuses to receive support. He, he actually is supported by other churches. He says, I robbed other churches to serve you. Why did he do it? Because like Nehemiah... He was in a situation where the finances were not where they needed to be. And so uh, he did that, and he trusted God. He worked with his own hands. He went through massive anxiety and stuff, Paul did, and you and could say burnout type stuff. You can go read that in, in the Corinthian letters. But he did that out of love for them. So Nehemiah is not going to demand. And then we're going to see Nehemiah in the last part of verse 19. He's going to turn to the Lord, and he's going to say, remember me. He's asking God for God's favor and blessing, I truly believe. Remember, Lord, that I have obeyed you. Take care of me is what I picture him saying. Um, because as a leader, he will pray this prayer uh, many times. So, the last verse is there, 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor um, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of king, Artaxerxes, 12 years. Now, commentators debate whether Nehemiah was there for like, like the two months that they built the wall and then left and came back and was governor for 12 years. We don't know exactly or if he was even left during a part of that 12-year term and then came back. It's going to come up later in the book with some things because he is going to leave and come back and then – well, I don't want to give the story away. But anyway, we're going to see that happen, and uh, the, the important thing is he's going to be governor for 12 years regardless of exactly what the details are. Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. So he's doing this at his own expense. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now, I am in no way trying to deify our previous president. But if I'm not mistaken, did he not refuse a salary? Is saying there's something to what scripture is saying here i'm not deifying trump he, he, he was a strong guy uh, he also was you know not the kindest i'll just leave it at that but he stood for things that were right in many respects and i'm not deifying him i'm not but but i'm just pointing to that verse 16 or actually pardon me verse 15 um, Former governors laid burdens on the people, and they took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Fear of God is what guides him through this and gives him wisdom. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, is it not? No wonder you're such a fool if you don't fear God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall. So Nehemiah is still working. He's rolling up his hands, his sleeves. He's in there right alongside the people. He's dealing with all this at the same time. It just It's more upon more. And we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for work. And at my table, notice he's going to expand his hospitality. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came from us, from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. That's probably pretty expensive. Also fowl prepared for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. That is chapter 5 today. And in a couple moments here, uh, Thelma, if you want to get that button to turn on, um, and Scott, if you'd be willing to push play on the tape, we're gonna to close today with a special song that I wanted to share in just a couple of minutes. And this is gonna be our time of altar and our time to think through. I know there's a lot I hit on, and you know, you may have to listen to the recording to go back and get it all, but God's word speaks to the life that we live. It relates, it's timeless. We never have to make it relevant because it is timeless. It is the eternal, enduring word of God that will endure beyond this earth forever oh lord thy word is settled in heaven and today if there's something you need to lay down with the lord uh, privately if there's something you need to pray about if there's something you need to make public and and testify about simply let the holy spirit lead and guide you during this time and you're welcome anytime you don't have to wait till the end of service you can come and kneel at you know we don't have altars but we have the steps you you can come and kneel at any time in our church before God if you need to, or go out and pray. Never think that you have to wait until the end of a sermon to get right with God. But if He's doing something, if the Spirit's doing something in your heart today, just respond to him. So um come on whenever you're ready. Scott if you'll